Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is February 3rd, 2021, and our guest today is someone I hold in very high regard. Dr. John McLaughlin was president of the University of New Brunswick from 2002 to 2009. I think he understood before the rest of us what was happening in New Brunswick and across Atlantic Canada after 2000, our looming demographic challenges, the changing nature of our economic development and the need to engage a new generation of leaders. He's had a very interesting career, which took him around the world. We talked briefly about his time in New Zealand and Latin America and his observations about the rise of China. But what we really focus on is what needs to happen to ensure our province and region can have a prosperous future. He tells us about the initiatives he's working on right now to help bring about this future. And I think it's fair to say that Dr. McLaughlin is positive and optimistic about what can happen in New Brunswick and across Atlantic Canada. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Unsettled. Welcome, Dr. John McLaughlin. How are you today? Hi, David. It's great to be with you. I'm feeling great. It's really, really great to have you on. Uh, I have really enjoyed the discussions that you and I have had over the months and years. And now I'm very happy to extend that knowledge and that uh, your your thoughts and understanding to my audience here at the Growing Pains podcast. But before we get into those questions, I just wanted to to have you give our audience a little bit of your background. So where were you born? Uh, how did you um, progress until ultimately becoming the former president or the president of, of the University of New Brunswick and, and then where you are now? So just in 60 seconds or so, give us your thumbnail sketch. Well, sure. So I'm a fellow with uh, deep uh, roots in the Maritimes. My my dad came from uh, rural New Brunswick. My mom came from very rural Cape Breton. I uh, grew up in Fredericton, uh, went to the University of New Brunswick, uh, studied surveying engineering, which was a very obscure subject, certainly in my day. But my dad had been a surveyor and uh, you know, just thought the world of him. And so I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And it turned out I, I arrived in a department that was on its way to being probably the best in the world, uh, using some of the most sophisticated technology on the planet. And uh, so I got to be part of all of that. And, and, and that's how it all began. Sorry, before I ask you some scripted questions here, let, I wanted to actually raise that issue of, of UNB and GIS and geomatics and all that, because that's a really fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit about how UNB built up that expertise? Absolutely. So surveying and mapping have been a very honorable field with a, with a tremendous history, but, but frankly, by the 1960s, you know, it was a bit of a backwater uh, taught in civil engineering and forestry. <laughs> Uh, but then, wow, all this technology that had come out of World War II uh, was coming together. Uh, surveyors were among the very first uh, major users of computer technology, uh, of course, the satellites. Uh, 
global positioning was coming along, uh, satellite remote sensing, just all these amazing technologies that were going to be revolutionary. And UNB had just lucked in. It, it, it was a combination of, of a group of locals who'd come back from the war, who, who understood the technology and really wanted to advance it. A, a group of young academics who were coming in from Eastern Europe uh, to be part of that community. Uh, contract work coming in from NASA. UNB was very much involved with the mission to the moon. Uh, the first civilian applications of GPS technology, the beginnings of modern computer mapping, the spatial analysis. It was all happening this this wonderful place, uh, you know, way out in the provinces. But uh, uh, as you can imagine, it turned out that my own interest uh, ultimately was not so much in developing the technology. Uh, I was much more interested in how to use it because the other sort of big narrative here was that uh, geography. You know, geography had been sort of a traditional subject you took in school and lots of maps and charts, but not really all that important in many ways. And yet at the dawn of the computer age, uh, first in the military and then uh, in civilian applications, geography presented a way to organize the computer information and to present it. It became extremely powerful. I mean, this is the genesis of what will become GPS, location technology, Google Earth, all of that stuff. And so I was interested in how to use this stuff. And uh, so I went off to the University of Wisconsin to do my doctorate, uh, not in technology. I, I, I mean, UNB was the world center for that kind of stuff. But I wanted to uh, get a deeper understanding of the applications and institutional realities. So my goodness, for an engineer, I ended up uh, doing my doctorate in uh, law, institutional economics, and rural sociology. What a combination, but, uh, but it was wonderful, and, and it led to just an amazing career. Yes, no doubt. So, um, yeah, I want to ask you, our audience is economic development people and folks that are interested in how we grow sustainable, uh, foster sustainable economies here in Atlanta, Canada. But before we get there, you... you after you were done your time as president of UNB, you worked on two very interesting commissions for the government. Yeah. And if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit about those two, because I think in many ways, the response to those, the echo of those is with us today in terms of our the challenges we have with big public policy issues. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the first one, which was around aging and demographics uh, in New Brunswick. What was that one about? What did you conclude? What were your recommendations just at a high level? Uh, and then where did we end up? Sure. So I was asked by uh, Premier Allward, uh, this is about a, my goodness, it must be a decade or more or so ago, to uh, lead a commission to review uh, uh, the challenges and opportunity associated with uh, sort of the aging population in New Brunswick. And uh, I wasn't all that keen to take on this assignment, to be frank. I was much more interested and involved with young people and, 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 and sort of a different set of challenges. But uh, I must say it, it turned out to be just an unbelievably interesting uh, exercise. Uh, the, the only thing I knew about aging was I was becoming <laughs> a senior citizen. I just turned 65. And... Uh, so we dove in, we had a commission, we had a, a wonderful, a very gifted uh, a staff to work with us. 
and we began this exercise. Uh, it was an open-ended mandate. Uh, we were to look at all aspects of, uh, of sort of the demographic reality that was, that was confronting us. And, and, and right up front, there was, there was sort of two major themes that, that really grabbed me and, and, and we'll feature later on, I think, in our conversation. The first is, oh my God, we're treating this as a big surprise. I mean, we knew that this sort of, the boomers, my generation, were, were approaching uh, retirement and they were going to be a huge force. I mean, we changed public schools in the 50s. We changed universities in the 60s. So, and, and demographers have been writing about this stuff, but it's still, somehow it seems to surprise us uh, in ways that it shouldn't have. So that was, that was number one. And then secondly, as, as it became more and more important, yeah, the, the, the sourness, the, the negativity, you know, we seniors were gonna destroy the healthcare system. We were gonna destroy the financial system. We were just, we were bad. The whole, it, it was all treated as sort of such a negative, challenge that we had to address and so we dove into it and 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 the reality was so different right i mean the reality was that you had especially with the boomers probably the the healthiest uh, wealthiest most socially engaged uh, community going into retirement ever and sure uh, lots of challenges and, and 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 especially for folks with with real medical concerns and and and, and lots of social issues as well but frankly, those were embedded within a much bigger story that was much more positive, that was much more encouraging. Uh, lots of folks who wanted to stay involved, wanted to stay active, who could still make a huge difference. And that was the story that we wanted to focus a lot on. This was not at, at heart a medical issue. This was a story about a lot of folks who could still make a huge contribution to our community and in fact could help reimagine it. And 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 my goodness, the lessons we learned out of that exercise were so positive, so encouraging. We, we, we still haven't really seized the moment yet what it all means, but, but I think that was the beginning of, of, of understanding that this was, a, for the most part, a very positive, a very encouraging new world that we had to take advantage of. But so you ended up making a few recommendations. Yeah, sure did. One of them was more controversial than another, but, and I haven't read that report in a number of years, but I do remember when I read it originally, and you actually came, you probably don't remember this, but you came and presented it to us. I was on the board of Spencer Home at the time in Moncton, Atlantic Baptist Housing, and you actually came and presented that to us. Um, I was, it was almost romantic, your notion of, of clustering older folks and, and them taking advantage of, of services and dancing and recreation and volunteering and da, 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 da. And I thought, man, this is, this is quite a vision uh, for, for the boomers as they head into retirement. But what, what did you end up recommending? And, 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 and do you think, well, I think I know the answer, but do you think it was actually implemented or, or actually taken forward by the government at the time? Well, let me begin by, you know, some of the things we learned along the way. And uh, I mean, one of the first things I learned as we get into this, uh, I had never really been involved with, with happiness research before. It turned out to be a, a very bona fide, very positive subject, but not something I, I, I knew much about. So anyway, we were looking at this information and, and, and it was telling us that uh, folks in their 70s, I mean, there are caveats and cautions here, but, but, but by and large, people in their 70s are are much happier than people in their 40s. 
oh my goodness, I mean, that was such a positive and encouraging thing to begin with, uh, that, that it's, it's actually a very constructive, very productive, very, very positive uh, stage in life if, 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 if we enhance it and, and support it properly. The other lesson that, that we learned very on was that uh, 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 these seniors, especially the younger seniors, did not want to be stuck off in ghettos, stuck off in, in, in sort of isolated communities that are on their own. They still wanted to be very much involved with the broader community, with younger people. They, 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 they still wanted to contribute, and, 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 they, and then they wanted to be part of something bigger. And so this was all sort of helping to flavor uh, the agenda. And what else? They, they wanted to give back. And, and, you know, and we had real surveys on this. If you asked a senior uh, for a specific policy, should you invest in them or should you invest in their children and grandchildren? And 99% of the time they said in the children and grandchildren. We've had our turn. Uh, this, this is about helping the next generations uh, advance the agenda. Now, caveats, you got to trust the governments that they're going to do what they say they're going to do, right? And, 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 and so, you know, there's, there's, there's reasons for some skepticism. But anyway, this was all about wanting to be part of something bigger. So as we get into it, this, this was a pretty broad-ranging uh, commission, right? So we looked at uh, the financial realities, uh, pension plans, public and private pension plans. We, we, we looked at uh, health care. We looked at uh, nursing homes and so forth. But, but it was a pretty broad-ranging series of uh, agenda items, and they were all interrelated. So that was also part of this, uh, this bigger story. So anyway, all of that sort of fashioned the narrative that we began to put together. Uh, just changing the language, for example, that, you know, elderly, uh, people with medical problems, and, and trying to say, yeah, that's legitimate, and those are, are, are real concerns, but, but build it and place it within this broader narrative. So yeah, we, we ended up on a, on, on a number of fronts, and, and maybe if, if we have the time, two that I might mention, there's a lot of good financial stuff, quite technical perhaps for another day. But the, the two that I, I'm really interested in, maybe in discussing briefly, is, is nursing homes. Uh, they, they actually, less than 10% of, of our citizens will end up in nursing homes, but nevertheless, that's, that's a very important part of the equation, and, and we need to think about that. And, and the other thing is seniors in the built environment more generally. I think those are the two themes. Uh, David, if, if you're up for it, I'd like to discuss a little bit more. Yes, please. So with respect to the nursing homes, there was there was this mad idea. It, it was floating in, in those days. And I'm saying now, this is about a, a decade ago, of building large seniors complexes quite removed from where people live for economies of scale and, 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 and for other reasons. And it was sort of a model uh, driven in part by the private sector with public-private partnerships. And it was getting some serious traction. And it was clear to us from our own work and from work we'd seen around the world that, that this, this just didn't make sense. It, 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 it divorced people from their communities and their sense of being and, and sense of connection. And, and, it was, it was a challenge, and we really needed to address that. And, and in fact, a lot of other folks got on board with this as well. And, and, and that became a major campaign not to allow us to go down that path. 
And I got to tell you, David, uh, we do have serious problems uh, here in the Maritimes, certainly here in New Brunswick with uh, COVID and, and our nursing homes, but nothing like what's happened in Ontario and elsewhere, where folks were, were, were moved from their communities, uh, didn't have that daily engagement, didn't have sort of the oversight and, and continuity. And, and a lot of places in Canada paid a hell of a price for for going down that road and we didn't and yeah we, we we have challenges but we have our staff director for that particular study was a a, a young lady called jody hall was the uh, executive director of the nursing home association probably one of the most gifted persons working in this field anywhere in the world and with her and her colleagues out and around the province uh, uh, we're able to fashion a very different agenda. So I think the way New Brunswick and, and, and Atlantic Canada, by the way, ha has dealt with uh, uh, the nursing homes and those challenges, even though they're legitimate and even though they're real concerns, compared to a lot of the rest of the world, uh, we, we, we did a very good job. And, and, and that's one of the pluses. But there's still a big waiting list, right? And I, I don't know how I haven't seen the numbers lately, but there's still not enough spaces for demand. And I, I've always thought that rationing was not necessarily the best way to handle the healthcare system in general, right? This idea that if you sort of ration things that, that you'll reduce demand. So what did your report or do you have any thoughts on how we ensure that people that need this kind of care can get it? Well, and let's tie that into the other major theme, which was the built environment. We, we, we also realized that we had this wonderful opportunity to rebuild our urban communities, rather the cities in southern New Brunswick, for example, also small uh, uh, rural centers around the province. Uh, we, we, it's something we neglected for a long time. It, it, it's, it's sort of one of the great challenges that we didn't address in the days of equal opportunity. But now we had this, 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 this terrific new opportunity. You had this sort of large cohort of folks going into retirement, uh, effectively going to double the retirement uh, population. And some of those folks wanted to stay in their, in their homes with their boots on uh, to the very end and, and, and good for them. That, that's, that's an important part of the equation. There are other folks who wanted to run away and... Uh, uh, you know, go where their children and grandchildren were or go off to a gated community in Florida or, or whatever and, and, and fine, good for them. But there was a large group in the middle. I mean, a large group, like tens of thousands of people who no longer got uh, meaning from their job. Uh, in, in many cases, it, it, it was a widow uh, on her own uh, who were, who were s still searching for meaning and engagement and were really keen to downsize and, 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 and sort of come back downtown and, and be part of something bigger. And, and they didn't want to be on their own. I mean, we also very interested in having young people and, and workers and others sort of coming back downtown to be part of that as well. But, but it was a, 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 this wonderful opportunity to, 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 to bring people back together and, and, and yes, build dedicated uh, seniors housing, especially for those who needed uh, assisted care. But a lot of people still wanted to be on their own. But for example, would go into uh, a nursing facility, perhaps for daycare, uh, to allow their, uh, their, 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 
their family and others to, to, to get a break, to take advantage of medical and other health-related facilities that are clustered together. It, it, you know, it, it didn't have to be sort of this isolated nursing home on its own, but, but nursing homes is part of a bigger, uh, more comprehensive, more holistic agenda. And, and, and rather sort of having people periodically uh, sort of being bussed into town to see what was going on. They, they, they could actually live there and be part of it. And, 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 and then you could have the density to have sort of the walking trails, the swimming pools, all that kind of stuff that creates a very healthy and a very positive environment. So that was also very much part of the agenda. And, and that's what I found so, I don't know if romantic is the right word, but it just felt so... Man, that sounds like a way the way we'd all like to live, at, you know, as we age. But it didn't get a lot of good traction with government. I think it's fair to say that particular recommendation because of how rural we are and this concern about not emptying out our rural rural communities. Would would you agree with that? What was the reaction from government to that part of your report? Well, let me say first that. Uh tremendous support from the premier, uh, the premier uh, David Allward and from Dorothy Shepard, who was the minister of uh, social services. And, and they got it and, and they were terrifically uh, supportive. Now, as often happens, unfortunately, is there was a, a change in government not long afterwards. And of course, the, the, the new government, it wasn't their plan. So, uh, you know, they went back to square one and, and, and we're going in some different directions. And, and there's no question that the, the rural sociology is still at play. Uh, uh, the, the idea of sort of strengthening our downtown cores and then uh, identifying some regional communities to focus on so that we could really build that sort of sense of, of an urban reality. It, it's been a tough sell, uh, especially in New Brunswick. But I think uh, I think it's coming. It's coming very slowly. Uh and it, it certainly didn't take off at anything like the, the, the rate and the energy and the drive and the passion and the ambition that I wanted. But, uh, but there you go. Uh, we're sort of on our way, I guess. So one last question on this one. Um, I write a little bit about the subject. You know, it looks like volunteerism among older New Brunswickers is actually going down. Um, it's a tricky one because it's all tied in with church attendance and things like that which is on the wane right so if you take it's hard to decouple those two but just if you look at the the volunteerism rate among people over the age of 55 in this province it's actually going down it's not going down across the country um i when i was in government that government that you uh, hinted at earlier i did try and come up with i thought i was still in the in the sort of george bush jr mobilizing volunteerism at the community level kind of mindset for better or worse. And I thought we should have a bit of a volunteering plan for government. And in other words, how do we encourage the older generation to volunteer more, you know, mentor like older plumbers, mentoring young, younger plumbers, uh, retired UNB uh, presidents, mentoring young economists, things like that. And the, uh, the premier dismissed it. He said it was condescending. You can't go out and tell people, you know, that they should be volunteering. And that was never my intent. My intent was to sort of set up a structure that encouraged and 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 gave opportunities for volunteerism and, and mentoring and things like that. But do you think we are taking advantage of that boomer pool in terms of supporting community development and engaging young people and all of the things you mentioned earlier? Or are we not yet figuring out how to tap that group? I mean, there's a lot of stereotypes. I understand, you know, that, that, that 
you in your earliest remarks you talked about the selfish boomer right uh, and it's even become a meme hey boomer I'm, I'm not familiar too familiar with the memes but apparently it is a meme now that that boomers are hoarding all the money and you know and, and all the health care and so on but that aside what do you think do you think we're doing a good job of 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 our plus 60 plus new brunswickers getting out there and getting engaged in their communities and volunteering and helping transferring some of their knowledge and their experience uh, to the next generation? Well, there's some of that going on for sure, but, but, but certainly not as much uh, and, and not at a, at, at a level that, that, that we would like, you know, Putnam is right. Uh, bowling alone is right. Uh, the sort of the social infrastructure that was there in the fifties and sixties that brought uh, folks together, uh, the role of the churches, uh, the service uh, groups and so forth. Is not uh, nearly as persuasive, uh, pervasive as as it used to be, but that doesn't mean people don't want to give back and don't want to be involved. In fact, they do. In fact, there's a real hunger to be engaged. The purposeful life means everything, and and and, and consistently, people will tell you that the reason people in their seventies are happier is if they're still engaged, if they're still connected, and if their life still has meaning. So that's not going away. That's as strong as it ever was. But what we do need to do is to figure out new and different ways to engage people, to bring people together. Just because we no longer belong to the service clubs like we used to, because not as many people go to church on a regular basis, doesn't mean that they're still not spiritual. It doesn't mean that they don't want to be involved in the community. In fact, I think there's a terrific need and, and, and wish to do that. But the mechanisms we have, the way we go about it, uh, that needs uh, a, a lot of attention. Look, we're, this is going to take. This is going to turn into a three-hour podcast, so we have to move it along. But I do, uh, although I think I, I think my reader uh, listeners might actually enjoy the three hours. But I do want to ask you quickly about your um, you heading up that shale gas commission after when the new government came in in two thousand and fifteen. I think it was late two thousand fourteen. Uh, so you were asked to head up a commission on shale gas. Um, can you just give us a little thumbnail sketch about what you were asked to do and how that turned out? Sure. Well, I was asked by Premier Gallant to be part of uh, a commission. Uh, I didn't want to do it. Uh, not at all. In fact, uh, I think I turned down two or three calls from them, uh, especially because they hadn't done anything with their earlier report. So, uh, you know, I wasn't predisposed to them necessarily. But anyway, at the end of the day, if your premier asks, uh, you pretty well have to do it. And again, it's a subject I didn't know anything about. Uh, it, it was a deeply controversial subject, as you know, at the time, very stressful. Uh, folks were pretty cynical about what they wanted from this uh, commission. Uh, they really just wanted to get the whole subject off the front page, right? I mean, that was really the goal. Okay. So, but in any event, uh, my colleagues and I took on this assignment, and again, it turned out to be just a terrific learning exercise. It, it, it was a huge challenge to get people to want to engage. I mean, the, the level of trust, as you know, in government and the public sector was, it was incredibly low. Tensions were very high. The images of the police car that had been set on fire in Kent County was still very vivid. 
and uh, and 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 the level of cynicism that uh, you know this commission's just been set up to get the thing off the front page and nothing's going to happen and so forth. So anyway, uh, we we. Uh, Took on this assignment. Uh, again, we're, we're blessed with some incredible people, both from within government and a couple of consultants who really, really uh, rose to the occasion. Uh, one of our consultants, uh, Lisa Reblick, who's just uh, it, so gifted when it comes to trying to figure out how to engage, get people involved, uh, how to get uh, a sense of... Uh, People coming together to really work on on, on the issues of the day. I mean, there, there's nobody better than her at, at, at doing that. And, and, and so she and, and some of the folks from within government. So we went off to Kent County. We went off to Albert County. Uh, it was incredibly stressful at the beginning. Uh, it was, well, that's for another day, just how difficult it was. But commission and the staff uh, uh, hung in there. Uh, work through uh, a lot of the initial challenges, uh, try to build up some level of trust and engagement. Uh, tried to get the media uh, out of the way for a little while because they weren't very helpful. And this amazing thing happened. Uh, over time, uh, people then did come together and we had some very, very thoughtful conversations to the point where I would say that for the folks involved who, who'd given this subject some thought and were concerned about it, you had a, a small group, I don't know, let's say 10% maybe, uh, drill baby drill, just uh, jobs at all costs, uh, just, uh, just a lot of mindless rhetoric, uh, believing there was going to be the next Klondike, there was going to be a big export market, uh, none of which was true, by the way. We'd already been to Pennsylvania. We'd seen the not only the current realities, but we could see how this industry was going to play out. And, and it was going to be nothing like what this sort of drill baby drill crowd was about. But you had that sort of at one end, and, 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 and they weren't very helpful. And then on the other side, there's sort of a, I don't even know if I'd call them environmentalists. I, I think I'd call them performance artists. It was more, look at me, and how much trouble can I stir up, right? And, and they weren't very helpful, but then a large group in the middle, and, and David, I mean a large group, 70% plus. On the one hand, you had JDI, you had Irving Oil, you had Corridor Resources. Uh, some of the most thoughtful, engaged, uh, technically expert folks who, who, who didn't present anything in terms of black and white, it was all about on a continuum. Of course, we have to move off of carbon. Of course, it's going to take some time, and this is how we need to, to be thinking about it. And on the other hand, the uh, Conservation Council of New Brunswick, uh, the, the, the anti-frackers, uh, a, a very thoughtful, a very sophisticated group. Uh, uh, it, it, it was an amazing dialogue. And, and, and when we actually ended up writing our report, uh, we got very strong, uh, positive encouragement for, from all sides. What we also learned, though, through that exercise, by the way, and, and, and it also features sort of in our, in our broader conversation, is that, is that that exercise was carried out without uh, a province that had a, 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 a well-developed energy strategy, an environmental strategy, you name it. it we're trying to position this very difficult and complicated subject uh, within a world without uh, sort of a, a, a policy framework just made it all the, all the more difficult. 
So you did end up making a series of recommendations at the end of that process that actually were meant to say, look, if you want to move ahead with uh, a domestic natural gas development industry, here's the kind of things you need to do around public support, around um, handling even things like the, the, the fracking water and things like that, as I recall. Um, it didn't really go anywhere, though. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. We, uh, yeah, we we were not asked whether there should be fracking or not. That was not our mandate. Our mandate was to look at well, what are the options, and what kind of uh, institutional and infrastructure support you need for whatever we're going to do. So in the end, we focused a lot on whatever you're going to do. We need to have a much stronger environmental regime. We've got to have a better understanding of what our energy and, and, and environmental strategies are. We've got to know where the hell we're going and how this fits into the story. And uh, as far as I know, uh, not a lot happened on that front. So I, I would say I really enjoyed that report as well. I thought it was nuanced. One thing about you is you don't – you're a bit of a, a strange cat to, to pigeonhole. You know, uh, sometimes you'll come out with with stuff that I think is 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 interesting, but left right, it's very hard to pigeonhole you. But I would say that report was pretty clear eyed, and I think your characterization of where people were on the continuum makes a lot of sense. But I still struggle because since two thousand and ten, I'm just looking at the numbers here. We've imported over two point five billion dollars worth of natural gas. So, in general, if you've got a resource water, any resource. It's a bit, for me as an economic development guy, it's a bit, you know, disconcerting that we wouldn't develop our own resource. We'd we'd import it from Alberta or Pennsylvania or whatever, but I understand everything that went around that. So, um, so now I want to move to the, to the thing that I really want to talk to you about today. And that's around what we need to, to do to ensure we have a prosperous economy into the future. You have, as long as I've known you, you've been very active trying to drive initiatives and efforts to, to you, basically you care a lot about the province. If you think about Next NB, if you think about Wallace McCain Institute, if you think about 21 Inc., if you think about the Business Council, all of these things have your uh, fingerprints all over them. And even now, we'll talk about in a minute what you're doing now, but what, just in general, where do you think we are as a province right now? And what do we need to do to ensure that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we're still a prosperous place. Not necessarily, you know, growth at any cost or any of that stuff, but that we're still a place that people want to move to that offers opportunities for people that can sustainably pay for public health care and public services. What do you think we need to do? And I'm sorry for the general question, but I'd like to hear your response. No, no, it's a great question. And uh, let me start by saying that I... You know, sometimes I'm more optimistic than others, and uh, over the years I've been all over the map. But uh, believe it or not, right now I am pretty optimistic about our future and, and 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 what we could become over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, obviously, there's a lot to be done, and 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 a lot of reality checks along the way. But uh, I I think we're actually we're at a critical moment. I think the world, it's not just New Brunswick, by the way, I think the world is changing quite dramatically and, and it's, it's been underway for some time, but I think it's becoming so much more obvious now. And and I think we're actually as well positioned as my, as anybody, as any place to, to, to seize that moment and, and, and sort of build a new vision, build a new reality. Uh, 
not something that, uh, you know, comes out of sort of uh, what they call policy tourism, <laughs> roaming around and seeing what the other guy's doing and how much of that we can bring back to New Brunswick. Oh, obviously, there's lots we can learn from others. But I think there, the, the time has come that, that we have to craft a, a narrative, a vision of what it is we want, where we want to go, and then mobilize resources to get there. And, and, and honestly, I, I think we're in much better position to do that now than I first came back to, I've been away from New Brunswick, as you remember, for a while. I, I actually was gone for almost five years. Uh, I formed a company in South America and I spent a lot of time overseas, as you know, during my professional career. And uh, anyway, I came back in the late 90s, and it was sort of like uh, I'd been away long enough that I, I began to look at the province and the region with fresh eyes. And and I could see then, and I, I'm not alone, by the way, I mean, it, but I could see that there were big changes underway. I mean, big deep changes uh, that sort of post-war era uh, lasted about three decades from the late 40s through the, the 70s where we built this amazing middle-class society and you know growth rates of four or five percent a year and, and just just marvelous stuff going on you could see that that era had come to an end right it was it, 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 we were moving on to a, into a different set of economic challenges and, and of course new global realities I spent the last 30 years going to China, which is another part of my background, and, and I saw sort of the future arising, right? And com combine that with, uh, with, with the environmental challenges that are so serious, so central, plus the, the social challenges, an aging society, uh, all kinds of social values that are, that are being contested. It, it was clear to me by the time I came back around you know, 2000 that uh, – uh, there, there was deep, deep changes at play. And while superficially New Brunswick had had a pretty good inning, I mean, I came back in part because of Frank McKenna and, uh, and, and that chapter in our history, but it was coming to an end. And, and by the way, it, it, it wasn't taking deep enough root to, to get us prepared for, for the future. So it, it, it was clear that we really had to begin addressing these sort of deeper issues. First, to just try to develop awareness and engagement. Uh, I, I, I often tell the story that, that when I became president, one of the first things I did was I went around the province uh, on a tour uh, j just to listen to folks, what, what they were up to and thinking about and brooding about. And, you know, I went to the Acadian Peninsula. I went to fish packing plants. I went to town hall meetings. I went to, well, just all over the place. And I remember I came back and, and we had this sort of provincial uh, news conference uh, and, and I, I presented on what I'd learned and, and what I wanted to do. And my, my first reaction, by the way, for that news conference was uh, whether anybody wanted to listen, right? I mean, who the hell are you, a president of a very conservative traditional university? Uh, uh, who cares what you think? I didn't get that at all. Uh, I, 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 there was the sense that uh, who cares who it is. Uh, we need these conversations. We need these dialogues. And so my my report at that time was was two part. First, uh, you know, there's a sense that maybe people don't care or they don't understand. And uh, you know, all the the bright ones have uh, run away, and <laughs> we who are left, uh, you know, we're just prepared to accept our realities. And not true. Not, not true by a long shot. 
whether you understood intellectually, you were reading about it, or whether it was just in your gut, the kids gone and they weren't coming home. There was widespread concern, uh, a real brooding, uh, and, and frankly, real understanding of what was going on at, at various levels. But the challenge was we, we didn't know what to do about it, right? We, 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 the traditional political processes weren't working anymore, that bad theater from a different era. The, the, uh, we, we live in a, a media desert in this province. There, there's just very little public uh, discourse. And so the sense of loneliness all over the place, all these little islands of people brooding and concerned. So on my watch as president at UNB, uh, what, what we wanted to contribute to, and, and I think we did, was to begin to build that level of awareness and engagement. And so sort of, I was like sort of like Johnny Appleseed, right? Going around involved in building the Business Council, 21 Inc. and God knows what else. Some of which took root and some of which it probably didn't, but trying to enlarge the community of engagement and, and getting some sense of confidence that, that, that we can, we can begin to talk about building a new narrative. And I think that's happened over the last decade. I think, I think there's a lot more young people in particular who are involved, who are thinking, who are connected. The problem is that it's still, it, it's, it's, it's translating all that good talk into action, right? We're, we're, we're getting beyond the rhetoric to uh, doing something. And that, I guess, is where I've been in post-retirement, uh, that's where my, my focus has shifted. Uh, I, I think the conversation's underway. I think a lot more people understand. We are at a, at a point right now uh, uh, of deep change. It's certainly as deep as anything we've confronted since the end of World War II, when, when we actually built sort of modern middle-class society in North America and then elsewhere. But it may even be deeper than that. It, 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 you can go all the way back to sort of the, after the American Civil War and sort of the, the, the building of the modern industrial state, right, and, and, and liberal society and all of that good stuff. And, and in some ways, we're talking about changes that are, that are that deep. And so the challenge now is not only to understand how important those realities are and, and get people talking about it and engaged in it, we really do now have to move on with an agenda. And and that's what we've been uh, toiling away at for the last number of years. So, so one, one thing, thing you, you've, you've done, done well at is, is framing things in terms of epochs or epics, right? Depending on the, Ian Hanna-Mansing had a big debate on Twitter about how you pronounce that, but I'm going to call it epics. So, you know, the post-war through the 70s. And I would agree with you that the the 2000 period, the sort of right after McKenna, that period 2000 to 2015 was an epoch or an epoch or an era um, that just wasn't well-defined. And you were in there fighting the good fight, you know, saying, look, this is coming. We got to, we got to embrace it. We've got to do stuff. But I don't think there was a lot going on there. And the demographic thing was hitting hard. It was shrinking the workforce. Uh, The GDP by 2008 had ground down to 0.5 per year. Um, because of low interest rates and other things, the government sort of didn't really see it that much in the public debt or deficit. And I think that's one of the reasons why it wasn't that obvious to people. But I I agree with you. But I I think that turned, I hope that turned around 2015, 2016, because we did start to see an uptick in the population. We've seen an almost tripling of the immigration into the province since 2015. Um, 
you know, I, I think we're having conversations about new industries. We're having conversations about how do we effectively address global warming in this province. Uh, I, I think there's a ton of things that need to be done, and I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But would you agree with me that we, you, we're we seeing green shoots now, at least, that since, say, 2015, 2016, or, or no? No, I absolutely agree. And, and, and it's important in this context to, to understand how long a lot of this stuff it takes to germinate, to take root. Uh, the McKenna era, you know, we think back on the late 80s, the early 90s, that sort of uh, the place had lucked in with the dot-com era and, and, and the digital uh, telephone infrastructure we had in this province and so forth. And it, 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 sometimes it's almost treated as if it came out of nowhere, right? But it didn't. Uh, the, the R&D, the fundamental infrastructure development, the rules of engagement, that was all done by the post-war generation who, who put this stuff in place. And then when the opportunity came, uh, McKenna and uh, NBTEL and others on the private sector side and Service New Brunswick and others on the government side were able to take full advantage of that. Similarly, uh, I mean, UNB, for example, uh, certainly during my era, uh, was just humming. I mean, largest enrollment ever. Uh, we won awards as the most commercially viable uh, uh, R&D uh, university. We, uh, we had the largest fundraising campaign. A lot of good stuff was going on. Centers like the McCain Wallace, Wallace McCain Institute and, and TME and others are, are, are thriving. And, and, and graduates are coming through and, and they're going to begin 10 years later, right? To begin to change the world as well. So a lot of this stuff takes takes time to, to mature and to realize. And, 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 and so I think that's part of it. But I also think that, but these are still very early days. And, 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 and David, you know, you've got a few nice little uh, stats on the economic front, a little bit of immigration, and, and, and it's all encouraging. But it's really, really early in terms of what we've got to do and where we've got to get and just how ambitious an agenda uh, we need to fashion going forward. But as you say, a lot of stuff is put and put in place. It, it, it doesn't get a lot of recognition, perhaps, on a day-to-day basis. But a lot of stuff's been going on. A lot of folks have been getting involved. And I think we are ready for, for sort of getting more ambitious, thinking bigger, uh, seizing our own destiny. By the way, that's, that's a huge part of it. It, it. I know I'm guilty of sidebars, right? But I want to give you one more. <laughs> I, I lived in uh, New Zealand in the 80s uh, during a very famous election there. Uh, New Zealand had just uh, received a report from the IMF that effectively was saying you're on your way back to third world status. You've lost your preferential treatment into the British market. Uh, A lot of stuff's going wrong here. Uh, You don't seem to be... uh, rising to the occasion. So I was there through uh, in, in a very famous election, uh, a labor government, a left-wing government, but who understood that they had to make some tough, tough, deep uh, choices, selections. And the New Zealand uh, electoral cycle was only three years, so it wasn't as if they, you know, they, they could get it a lot done. But anyway, they went to the polls, and I was there. I was, actually got involved a little bit in the election. And David Lange, the, the prime minister, and Roger Douglas, his famous uh, uh, minister of uh, finance, 
they, they went to the public with, with, with a very ambitious but a very difficult agenda. And, and they said straight up, uh, we will not be able to accomplish that much over the next three years, and there's going to be a heck of a lot of pain. This, this is going to be very, very challenging. It's going to be some fundamental changes we're going to have to make. And by the way, we're also going to have to, to, to take some risks. And, and we don't know everything we need to know, but we've got to get on with this. Well, they went to the public with a sort of brutal black and white, uh, you know, no holds barred, and they got a resounding uh, victory. Uh, you know, people presented with the reality. They trust the messenger. It's, 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 it's framed in a certain way and so forth. Uh, you can do some magical things, which New Zealand did. Well, we're there. But don't, but don't you think that's part of our problem now? There's not, at least at a provincial level, there's not that same level of political urgency. The budgets are balanced almost every year. Uh, the feds are pumping in more money to, to fund health care. You know, the f- more folks are retire- retiring every year, so there's not as much demand among local people for jobs. Do you Do you really think there's anywhere near the political demand for the kind of changes we saw in 19 late 1980s New Zealand. I mean, I, I, I think we're kind of in a sense of we're at a kind of a, I don't, I, I don't see that at all in the Brunswick, but in terms of, I understand it in terms of the numbers, in terms of the context, in terms of the global warming, everything we're facing in the province, I, I, I sense that, but I don't think that's been translated at all into the political narrative. The political narrative is, well, right now it's COVID, but even, you know, uh, if we go beyond COVID, it's more about sort of personal concerns, right? Am I, are you going to close my hospital or are you, you know, what are you doing for this community or that community? Do you really think there's a real political will now to, for big, big change? Let me put it this way. Uh, I, I think the public right now are out in front of the political class. Uh, I do. And, and I saw that, for example, I mean, the fracking commission is one example. Uh, you know, the, the politicians from, were from another era altogether. They, 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 it was actually quite disgraceful uh, uh, the way they were engaged in the debate. The public, they knew about the Paris Agreement, for God's sakes. They, they, they knew the discussions that were underway. They knew that the, the challenges that we had to face, that, that they knew that their kids were gone. We've been unable to mobilize that sort of public discontent, but but I believe that that in fact uh, the public is well out in front. In general, I, I do, and, and and our challenge now is to is 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 to figure out new and different ways to engage them to 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 advance these agendas. And we have some ideas about, but obviously about how to do that and and, and get on with that path. Yes, uh, to a certain extent. We are going to be bringing the politicians along. You, you are a big advocate for the public, and that's coming clearly through this conversation today. Do you, but you've never, have you ever run for politics? Have you ever actually put your hat in the ring? Oh, absolutely no. I'd be an awful retail politician. My God. But, 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 but a good question. We, we, we need our best and brightest in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Absolutely. You know what, what, what happened with my generation, probably yours too, is the best and brightest didn't go near politics, frankly. 
they, they left it to other folks, right? And, and got on with what, what they thought they could make a bigger difference and, and, and have lives that were more meaningful. It's, it's not, by the way, that folks that went into politics were bad. They're not. They're, they're, they're thoughtful people. They, they, they want to do good. They, they want to be supportive. But, 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 but the, the folks that with real ambition, who really want to change the world, who want to, who want to get on with the new narratives, by and large, haven't gone, gone near. That was not the case, by the way, in the post-war era. When uh, sort of New Brunswick built uh, the infrastructure, the institutions, it sort of built this modern middle class society. Uh, a lot of the politicians, yeah, by and large, were were you know just there to to, to, to be helpful. But there was a, 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 a at least two generations of, of leadership, you know, the, the premiers and a small group of senior uh, cabinet ministers around them, who were absolutely first raters, who were people who were really up for it. And, and for example, uh, the, the province probably had one of the best uh, public services in Canada uh, for, for at least 30, 40, maybe 50 years after World War II. And just gifted leadership. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, we've got to, it, it's part of the longer term strategy. We, we have to re-engage with politics, probably in a very different way to what we're doing it now. And, and we need to get younger people, uh, a much more diverse group of people involved. But in the meantime, I think we've shared this story in the past, uh, my Peter Drucker story. So, so Peter Drucker is, uh, was, you know, the, the dean of, uh, sort of business management consultants, scholars, advisors, the, the man wrote what 200 books, uh, I mean, he, he lived almost 200, so he, he had the time to do it. But in any event, a, a good market-oriented uh, fellow, right, and, 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 and very much uh, focused on the private sector. But he said in, 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 at the end of his career, and sort of one of these uh, books where he was thinking back on, on a life of engagement and, and, and with a lot of wisdom, he said, uh, you know, the markets are terribly important and, and the role for the state but in times of real change, I mean, deep change, that's not probably where the leadership's going to come from, from either of those sectors. It's going to have to come from the community in new and different ways. It's going to have to be, we're going to have to reimagine our futures. We're going to have to do things differently coming together as individuals and groups of individuals. And then we've got to bring the markets and the state along. And I think that's going to be a part of the story as well. But I that so that's a great tee up for my next question. On the front page of the National Post today, I don't know if you saw that, in big bold letters, Canada needs a beaver brook, and there's a very nice picture of the beaver, uh, and it's basically related to vaccines and vaccine distribution. So the of course the National Post is arguing that we've done a terrible job of that nationally. But in terms of New Brunswick, you and I have talked about this a bit before. You know, there's this view among some that we need another McKenna, that we need like the big man theory of history, right? That you, we just have to wait for the white knight to come in uh, and he or she, hopefully in, in the future, it'll be a she, they come in and they actually have this massive vision. They can bring everybody into the tent uh, and we get this massive change done. I have been skeptical of that since McKenna. I love I love the idea of of leaders getting involved involved in politics. I love the idea of people worrying about their legacy uh, and trying to build a legacy and trying to say, "Look, I want to help move this province along." But I've been skeptical since two thousand, right? In this little window we've been talking about, that we're ever going to get that kind of leader 
uh, or leadership again. So do you think we need another McKenna or do you think, and I think you insinuated in your last response, or do you think this has to be more networks of highly engaged people around the province that sort of, it sort of comes together and you get a virtual, you know, a virtual kind of leader? What, what do you, what do you think? Could we use a beaver? So keen on attracting and keeping individuals who are going to make a huge difference, right? Whether it's Frank McKenna or Harrison McCain or, 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 or you name it, right? Uh, uh, of course, individuals uh, are, are very important and, and they can make a lot of difference. But over the long haul, you, it, it, you've got to deepen the culture. You've got to deepen the community. It, it, it's, 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 it's many of us coming together. Uh, you know, I also think so highly of McKenna. Uh, uh, he's one of the reasons I came back home. I think his middle part of his uh, tenure was, uh, was 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 pretty special. But the reality was that 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 his legacy didn't leave the deep roots for for the kind of change agenda we're talking about either. Individuals can 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 make a, a big difference, but uh, but this has got to be about more than that. And by the way, also. You never go back. It's not going to be a McKenna too. It, 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 it's, it's what's the next story. So, uh, no, I, I guess ultimately, uh, you know, the province has had, uh, I mean, that's how we were founded is, is the big man principle, right? We're working for the mill owner and, uh, and the rest of us all knowing our place. And, 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 and that sociology really hasn't uh, done us that much good over the years. So I'm, I'm all for celebrating individuals and God knows we can use more of them, but that's not where the heart of the story is. Okay. I want to ask you about universities. It's a subject you know a little bit about. Um, I'm, I, I was a bit surprised uh, a few, uh, I think it was last summer I had to do an, uh, a presentation on post-secondary education. So I went in and I looked at all the data, enrollments, international enrollments, GDP contribution, research levels, and everything kind of sort of flatlined not long after you left. I'm not saying it had anything to do necessarily with you, Dr. McLaughlin, but we did go into province-wide. If you roll up all the universities, it, it sort of flatlined a bit. And even the research spending, sort of, if you look at the absolute research dollars per year, they peaked, I think, I don't remember when, somewhere around 2008, 2009, and they've been going downhill. Now they've tipped up a little bit in the last year or so, I think. But I guess the question for you is, in my view, we need universities now more than ever. We've got a shrinking uh, 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 local talent pipeline, and universities are ideally positioned to attract talent to the province. Um, but even well beyond that, it's this whole idea of a university as a factory for ideas and, and, and addressing all of the big problems in society, but even as an incubator for entrepreneurs so where do you think we are with the university sector in the province? Do you see that moving in the right direction? Do you think it's going to play a big role in some of the things you're talking about in terms of change in society? Or do you think we're kind of stuck in a rut right now when it comes to our universities? Well, here's a couple of observations. One is uh, post-secondary education. And, and by that, I, I do mean more than just the universities, the, the community colleges, uh, the private sector. Uh, it, it, it's a web. Of, of parts, but I think it's central to the kind of society uh, we're imagining what we want to build. It's, it's central. It's, it's, I, I actually can't think of anything that's, that's more important right now in trying to get right. 
in terms of uh, development of uh, highly capable uh, human talent, in terms of a sort of a made in New Brunswick uh, R&D agenda, because we can't just be completely derivative. That, that That's incredibly unhealthy and counterproductive. In terms of being part of the national conversation about the future of Canada, uh, there's so many big examples right now where uh, New Brunswickers are not at the table because, uh, in, in large measure, because our, our universities and our community colleges uh, are, are, are not part of these uh, national conversations. There's the, the, the role of the arts. Uh, I mean, the cultural agenda is going to be so much more important in the, in, in the sort of uh, next iteration of, of, of what society is all about. It, it, it's, it's going to be incredibly important in, in how that's factored in. So uh, in my view, uh, there's nothing more important than a healthy, vibrant, ambitious, creative uh, post-secondary sector. And it's not just about the big cities. It's about places like New Brunswick. And of course, I'm biased. It's the sector I come out of, but I believe that so deeply and so fundamentally. And I and I've had the pleasure, for example, over the last thirty years, to witness what happened in China, and it's been absolutely central. The growth of the Chinese post-secondary world, to it, it's it features in everything that 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 they've been doing to to build this sort of modern economy. So hugely important. So the China, the China, your China experience is one I'd love to have you on in the future to talk about because I think a lot of times in the West we kind of the whole China narrative is about Xi Jinping or it's it's about the pol- politics and it's about the leader uh, and it's about the non democracy let's say but what you got to see is what's going on at the institutional level and at the community level and you had some very when we talked about this before you had some very impressive observations so maybe we'll have you on in the future to talk about what we can learn from China, even if we don't let necessarily like the political structure, right? You don't, there's, you can't be preoccupied necessarily with one thing. I want to end today with um, what you're working on now, because you're working on some very interesting things with Jirendra Shukla at, uh, at the TME and your work around deep change. And you've been, you've been speaking about it throughout the hour here, but tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now with TME and what your vision is over the next few years, specifically to what you're doing with TME? Well, I think uh, Durendra has provided me with a, with a home in what's called the Technology Management and Entrepreneurship Center at UNB TME to contribute to. I mean, there's lots of other folks involved, but uh, to all the stuff that we've been involved with, uh, these commissions you talked about, uh, to, you know, been on the boards of a number of startup companies, some amazing companies in cybersecurity and other areas. And so we are learning a lot of lessons. And, uh, and of course, we have lots of contacts and relationships around the world and are in touch with lots of other folks are doing. And by the way, an awful lot of folks are brooding and dealing with the same kind of issues that we are. So been really interested in the last few years of uh, how do we move all of this stuff from 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 you know, the world of academia, the world of talk and rhetoric, and, and how can we really begin to try to contribute to, to getting on with the agenda? We've got some amazing networks. I mean, uh, the alumni from all these various initiatives over the last 15 to 20 years are out there now. They're in important positions. They're making a difference and and and, 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 and want to be involved, right? Uh, we've got... Uh, 
incredible lessons that we've learned from these various studies and, and, and lots of other uh, things that are ongoing. So how do we take all of that stuff and begin to build sort of a new narrative for the province that we can all contribute to and, 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 and then sort of build a blueprint for how do we get on with, with effecting these sort of deep changes we're talking about. And, 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 and I mean, the challenges, as I mentioned, it's not just the economic challenges, uh, although they are very important, but there's uh, the environmental challenges are absolutely central to, to the narrative going forward. And, and then the, the social side, the, 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 the aging population, uh, uh, the north-south, the urban-rural, the levels of poverty and all that kind of stuff. How do we, how do we really uh, move on? So we've been framing an agenda in terms of uh, – changing our institutions. After World War II, we, we, we built a modern set of rules, regulations, taxation policies, uh, you name it, all for building sort of a modern resource-based industrial state. And, 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 and by and large, it worked. But it's now incredibly dated, and it, it's, 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 it's for a different era. And I mean, for example, just, just one specific example, as we talk about uh, uh, rebuilding our urban communities, trying to get urban density, understanding that a modern economy is based on uh, creative talent and capital. And, and, and they want to be in an urban environment. They want to be where that sort of density of energy and engagement. And then, frankly, we don't have it in the Brunswick. We don't have it in any of our cities. And, and, and also, we don't have it in our small rural communities where, where, where there's a complement to that. So we, we, we need to, to sort of reimagine what those communities could look like. And that means that the rules of engagement, why, for example, the regulations, the taxation policies, property taxes and others, uh, uh, just so much of it's counterproductive. It, it, it encourages sprawl. It, 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 it does not uh, either focus on the small rural towns or on these urban cities. We're, we're, it's from a different era. It doesn't make sense. So how do we change the rules of engagement is part of it. Strategic infrastructure. I mean, it, 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 here's a classic one. Let's take this one as a good example right now. So, you know, the, coming out of COVID, there's uh, uh, around the world, but certainly in, in Canada, there's this sense we, we've got to move money out and we've got to be creative and constructive. And, 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 and infrastructure is a huge part of that. We have to rebuild and, 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 and re-engineer our infrastructure. I mean, my God, what the Chinese and others are doing. In, in terms of infrastructure development compared to what we're trying to do just to maintain ours, it, it, it's night and day. But, but rather than having a plan, uh, uh, you know, a strategy for how to do that, uh, you know, the federal government will issue uh, a, a program for shovel-ready jobs, and by God, New Brunswick will try to respond with shovel-ready jobs. Rather than saying, listen, we need an integrated just like we did after World War II. After World War II, rose to resources, rural electrification, building the public education system. There was a group of things we needed to do. And by God, we got on and did them. Same thing now in terms of communication, uh, alternative energy, uh, transportation, whether we're going to have one airport. What, what does all of this mean? Uh, rebuilding our, our communities. All that kind of stuff. We, we need to bring it together in, in, uh, in, in sort of a a new and different way it, and and then go out and get the money for it, whether it's these federal programs, whether it's the fact that we're living in a world of cheap money. By God, David, by God, we're going to look back 
10 or 15 years from now and say, if we'd had a plan, if we'd had the imagination, the access that we had to incredibly cheap money to get on with it, right? Okay, well, it's never too late. And so we got to do that. And so we, in our little group, we've, we, we're beginning a process of getting people from the private sector and from government and elsewhere to, to, to come together to start talking about, well, what would a strategic infrastructure agenda look like? And then hopefully bring the politicians along and, and others. I mean, for example, right now in Canada, we're building a national infrastructure bank. And uh, the big provinces and others are, are, are actively engaged in, in discussing what that's going to be about, what, what it's going to mean for the country. You've got a sort of 21st century CD house uh, up there uh, plotting it. Uh, are we at the table? Are, are, are we making a difference? Uh, not at all like the level we need to be. So that and, and then some other critical components of sort of building that new support infrastructure for the kind of society we want to build. Uh, so we in the sort of deep change initiative uh, at UNB, uh, uh, we're a player, we're involved in that. And, 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 and it's an exercise in reaching out and getting more people involved and, uh, and then hopefully engaging government. The, the ultimately, government has to come. This is not going to work without the support of government. I grant you that. That's absolutely true. And, 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 and we need more people getting involved in politics. Uh, we, we, that, that's all part of it as well. But that's probably not where the leadership is coming from right now. And in fact, we're hoping to contribute to sort of that new narrative. So it's really great to have you in the battle, although I, I hesitate now to use that kind of martial language because it, somebody might take that to me and go storm the legislature or something. So I have to be careful. We have to be careful about that language. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm curious to understand here in the last minute we have is what motivates you because you're, you've done a ton of things in your career. You've worked with amazing people. You've done amazing things. Nobody would fault you if you just went off into the sunset and played shuffleboard and, you know, lived in Florida and, and sat on the beach every day. So what, what motivates you to continue, you know, playing this role behind the scenes and in front uh, in terms of trying to move the province forward? What, what motivates you? Oh, it's the deep roots. You know, I, I, I know where I came from. I know, I know what my dad did and the difference he tried to make. My wife's from Kent County with, with deep Acadian roots, and, and, and I know the challenges they've overcome and, and the differences they've made. And, and then on the other end, uh, I'm blessed that my, my, my son is back in New Brunswick with, with this just a wonderful family, and, and, and I'm hoping against hope that we can keep them here and, 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 and part of our future. So it's, it's that period in life where it, 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 it's giving back, and it's about having purpose having a sense of meaning. And I, I guess once you're no longer, maybe shuffleboard gives some people meaning, why not? And good for them. But, but this gives me meaning. This gives me a sense of purpose. And, and that means a lot to me. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for joining us today on Growing Pains. Thank you. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George. Is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.